0: Now, I think I better sing before I turn 51. Yeah. I mean 29, excuse
1: me. Uh, feels like we're sitting in Las Vegas at the Sands. Uh, uh, last summer, you I bought these two books so about Frank Sinatra, which are discussed here like with author James Kaplan, and I just loved them. I, I I've great. read a million music books, and, and this sometimes just something about the right book at the right time. And the right length after the person's death To put it in a specific perspective And these are just kind of a bullseye on all that Check WFMU.org slash Michael for the list of upcoming guests Hope your summer is off to a good start It's just about summertime, right? It's Memorial Day Uh, Here it is, my conversation with James Kaplan About his two great books about Frank Sinatra All right, there's Frank Sinatra. We've been talking about this all morning. James Kaplan joins us. He's a novelist and a nonfiction writer whose work has appeared in publications including The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Vanity Fair, Esquire, and New York Magazine, and I believe... Uh, he worked at WFMU. We'll have to get to the bottom of that. But we're here today to talk to uh, him about two books, uh, Frank Sinatra, The Voice, which came out in 2010, and Sinatra, The Chairman, came out in 2015. I've talked about those books on the show many, many times because I loved them. James Kaplan, welcome to the program. Good morning.
2: Good morning, Michael. Delighted to be here.
1: Let's start at WFMU. You used to be a staff member here. When? What happened?
2: (laughs) I told you. It was in the Paleolithic era. It was Freeform Radio. It was the beginning of Freeform Radio. It was the... it was just edging into the late 1960s, and I got my third-class engineer's license. And I used to—you uh, may remember a fellow named Vin Skelsa. Sure. Uh, I, I used to engineer for Vin and for various other DJs there. And uh, it was—I was—of course, I was just a kid, but it was a thrill to be there.
1: And were you a student at Upsala? Did you live in the neighborhood? What was your connection? Nope.
2: I, I lived a couple of train stops away in South Orange.
1: You just were into radio.
2: I was. I loved the music, and I was excited. I was thrilled by the existence of this sort of vaguely dangerous seeming radio station <laughs> within close proximity.
1: Yeah, well, it still still has that same hold on some people. So let me tell you a quick story. So I went into a bookstore and I saw Sinatra, the Chairman, and I picked it up. And I read the first page, as you do sometimes in a bookstore, and I was enthralled. And I took it home, and I started to read the first chapter, and I said to my wife, this is the greatest biography ever written because it doesn't start it usually starts with somebody's grandfather coming over on a boat and landing and you know and this is like this starts right at like this perfect moment this swinging moment of the guy's whole life and I thought he would sort of circle back and get to his childhood and I didn't realize that I had the second of two volumes in my hand obviously I figured that out after about a chapter or so uh, so I read them in the wrong order but I will say that I couldn't put them down they were both absolutely amazing and we're talking about big books, you're talking about about 1,500 pages in total. How did you approach it? Did you know it would be so huge when you started out?
2: No, I uh, know. No. I approached it with, with, with uh, terror. I, <laughs> uh, I had written many, many magazine profiles and I had written a few books, but I had, I had never done a biography before. And I did a book with Jerry Lewis uh, back in the early 2000s after I profiled Jerry Lewis for The New Yorker. And Jerry and, and he, he and I kind of got to be friends, and he talked a lot about Sinatra. And, and when I interviewed him for his book uh, and for The New Yorker piece, we, we sat in his home office in Las Vegas, and there was a picture on the wall Great picture of of him and Frank Sinatra in tuxedos, and, and and Jerry was tackling Sinatra was on the ground and and laughing his ass off, and Jerry had just tackled him. It was at the Os- one of the Oscars, and Jerry just jumped on him and knocked him down. He talked about Sinatra so much that I began to think he was always uh, always he always referred to him as Frank, and I began to think of Sinatra as Frank. And as we were finishing up Jerry's book. Uh, He invited me to come to the telethon, which was in Los Angeles that year, the Muscular Dystrophy Telethon, which he used to be famous for. and I I went out there, and one night while I was there, I went out to dinner with a bunch of the musicians on the show, not Jerry, but some of the musicians, and uh, we... Drank a lot. We ate a lot. The it Italian restaurant in Santa Monica. We had a jolly time. Everybody was laughing and well oiled. And they began to tell Sinatra stories. And I thought, oh boy, you know, here it comes. Uh, they didn't know I was there as a journalist. Uh, they just—I was just another guy. And uh, I thought I was going to hear great gossip about Sinatra and the and the and the women and the mob and the fistfights. And instead. These guys, they they all their voices got very low, very hushed and awed, and they were all talking, each of them, these six or seven guys talking about they had all worked with Sinatra at one point or another, in studios and shows, and they all talked about what an absolute musical genius this guy was. And I thought, whoa. That's that. That is interesting. That's interesting because when uh, when most people think about Sinatra, they think about the women and the mob and the fistfights. And it was right around that time that a new biography of Sinatra had come out and gotten panned in the New York Times. And I thought Ooh, and that would be pretty interesting to to do a really good biography of Sinatra as a musical genius, as opposed to uh, a thug or whatever else you want to make him. Public relations. Creature. So I got a contract with Doubleday to write the book, and the contract said, "Life of Frank Sinatra, three hundred fifty-two pages, <laughs> and and two volumes, uh, ten years, and fifteen hundred pages." Later, uh, I finished.
1: Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right in that the the parts of the book that that show why this description of his musicianship, it, you, you really make it clear through examples and taking us to sessions and to hearing from the other musicians. And I did indeed find that one of the most interesting parts of the book. Uh, he's an ideal subject to write a book about because every day of his life, he was shooting a movie that you know, the readers heard of, or he's recording a song that we know, or he's performing a concert, or he's on TV or radio, or he's dating, and I say the word dating. Some, dating, yes, dating. Yes, he's a <laughs> very romantic guy. Dating a gorgeous woman. Well, he, he
2: was romantic. He was romantic. He 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 was romantic until uh, until the crucial moment when it was over. And it was over uh, fairly quickly, and then he wasn't. Then, then he had somebody drive the lady home.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but every day it's a party with famous people. I mean, this guy did yep. not like doing nothing, right? And it, and it's all documented, so you had it all there to write about. Every day is something.
2: Yes, every day was something, and, and it's it's exhausting, <laughs> exhausting to to think about to to research. Uh, Uh, It's fun. It's fun to read about. He was a a pathologically impatient man. Uh, He just he could not sit still. He had the attention span of a flea. This is why shooting movies was such hell for him because making movies like watching paint dry. But when he got in a, a recording studio, he was he could be he can be impatient sometimes, but he was a perfectionist in the recording studio because he knew that was his legacy. Those those records would be his legacy. More than the movies.
1: Let's go way back to the beginning. There's, I've, I've heard so much about his mother over the years. Uh, this book has some information about his father. His father is not much of a character, which is sort of interesting.
2: Yeah, his father, uh, Marty Sinatra, was sort of a lug. Uh, he, he he was before Frank was born. He was uh, he was a, a semi unsuccessful prize fighter. And he then became a steam fitter. And then Dolly, who was very plugged into uh, Hudson County politics, democratic politics, got... Marty a job uh, as as a uh, fireman, and uh, she kept on pulling strings for him, and he eventually became a uh, uh, a fire captain in hoboken but he, he never said much uh, he wasn 't a one for talking. he may actually have been illiterate he certainly didn 't read much he was his body this was before tattoos were fashionable his his arms were covered with tattoos. He was not the force in the family uh, dolly Sinatra frank 's mother, and Frank was an only child. Uh, dolly was a force of nature she was uh, she was a midwife, she was an abortionist she was a a, a democratic uh, party uh, fixture in hoboken she uh, she was out uh, pounding the pavement for every Democratic candidate, and she was very, as I said before, very plugged in uh, to all kinds of networks, including, in those days, organized crime.
1: You, you mentioned that Frank has this lifelong impatience and this sort of manic energy. Can, is it possible to answer why he was like that?
2: I think his mother had a lot of the same, uh, the same qualities. They both, uh, they're both very impatient. They both had terrible tempers. He knew early on, well, let's see, you can take a few strands of his character. One was that he was a small, slight, uh, short guy. He's only about five, seven, if that. Very slight, very thin when he was a young man, and he was an italian american and uh, growing up in in hoboken in the 1920s and 30s when italian americans legally and it, it is it's obscene to even think about this now uh, and and to to say this but italian americans were not legally considered white in the 1920s and 1930s. So there was this, and, and they were just, uh, Italian-Americans considered just uh, like a half step, three quarters of a step up the social ladder from African-Americans and with many similarities. Italian-Americans were thought to be happy, singing, dancing people who ate pasta and, and killed each other. Uh, that's that's how Italian-Americans were regarded. So Sinatra had a chip on his shoulder. Uh, he was volatile, like his mother, but he also had these sociological conditions affecting him. And I think that he was just characterologically, I think he was born uh, with this impatience. He also, now having given you some of the, some of the factors about Sinatra's personality that people may find familiar, uh, I should also add that he was very aware very early on of being a musical genius. He said he heard when he was a boy, he heard the music of the spheres which sounds very hoity-toity and kind of uh, hippy-dippy or something. but, But I think in his case, it was genuinely true. I think that this was, first of all, this was the great, arguably the greatest interpretive musician of all time. Uh, if you have other candidates, uh, bring them up. But I think he was, and he had a musical ear that was uh, incomparable. So he he knew he was a genius, and he knew he wanted to sing, and he wanted to get there yesterday.
1: Yeah, uh, his ambition and his his drive. Is something to behold. I, I expected not to like Frank Sinatra, and I have to say, after reading the book, he was—he's worse. He comes off worse than I was expecting, and I was expecting. Pretty bad, and I'm talking about through his entire entire life. Uh, he yeah. he treats people terribly over and over and over again. The first mm. book ends right after the early 50s. He sort of takes a a real ego bruising. Uh, his bookings dry up. He has voice trouble, bad reviews, divorce, and it's sort of hard to believe because the way Sinatra is looked at through the lens of now is he is this untarnishable icon, and you forget. I think I'm not even sure young people know that he how deep a, a dive he took.
2: Yeah, he was in he in in the late 1940s and early 1950s. His career and his life were in the toilet. <laughs> he was as low as you can go, and. There were and, and he uh, there were a number of factors that caused this, including self-caused factors. Frank had a genius at that point for shooting himself in the foot, and he was beginning to step out of his marriage more and more publicly and be seen in public with all kinds of uh, beautiful movie stars, uh, eventually winding up with Ava Gardner, the most beautiful of all the movie stars. But he also, in, in 1947, was sighted in Havana at a mafia conference where he had brought a a satchel full of tribute money for Lucky Luciano, a columnist for the Hearst Papers, which were really the internet of the day, but very, the Hearst Papers were kind of like the Fox News of the day. They were very, very influential, very conservative, and this columnist saw Sinatra with Lucky Luciano and began writing all these columns about him. So here's Sinatra in the newspapers, and he's in the newspapers stepping out on his wife, he's in the newspapers hanging out with mafiosi, and uh, just to put more cherries on the sundae, Popular music really changed very, very sharply and very quickly uh, after World War II. Sinatra had sung America through World War II with these yearning ballads. All the boys were overseas uh, fighting, and, and uh, the women were at home worrying about them. And he sang these ballads for Columbia Records, and this was what made his career gigantic, superstar. But then the boys came back. Uh, from the war and music changed. Everybody wanted to escape. Music got very gimmicky. All kinds of uh, terrible uh, gimmicky popular songs, fast moving. Sinatra couldn't really sing the stuff. His records stopped selling, so his records weren't selling. He is he's uh, infamous publicly for adulteries and for for fraternizing with uh, with low lifes and his. Record company drops him because he's not selling, and his a movie studio drops him because he's infamous, and his agents drop him. And uh, there was one point in around 1949 when when Sammy Davis Jr. happened to be in Times Square and saw Sinatra walking through with his with his trench coat collar stuck up, and uh, and, and at night in the rain, and nobody even recognized him. And Sammy Davis thought, "Wow, I mean, <laughs> this guy, this guy that caused riots." Here in Times Square at the Paramount Theater just three four years ago, and now here he is. Nobody even nobody even cares about him. He his career was gone until until uh, until he made From Here to Eternity and won that Oscar.
1: Yeah, uh, it's an incredible story. It is funny to look at history with hindsight and see the bad reviews and the you know com- the comparisons to what, like you said things that turned out to be trends or singers like Johnny Ray that people w- you know thought were going to replace Frank Sinatra and who history yeah. tre- treats a totally different way than they than they treat uh Frank were there people who knew all along n- you know that people had put their money on the wrong horse were there people who always uh, knew that Frank would be the one remembered
2: well, when he was down on uh, down on his luck, there were certainly people close to him. There were there were a few people. I mean, Ava Gardner for a very uh, important example. Uh, they first met around nineteen forty one, and then uh, they they began their affair in the late forties, and they got married in nineteen fifty one. As her career, her movie career was taking off, and Sinatra's movie and recording career were plunging lower and lower. But she believed in him always. Uh, she said that he had a voice that just made her cry when she when she heard it. There were there were people who knew how how great his voice was, but it was uh, America. America can be very vengeful, and and Frank gave America a lot of reasons for uh, for hating him. Uh, <laughs> but th- th- those those who believed in him deeply uh, continued to believe in him. But they were in that. Period, distinctly a minority.
1: Yeah, Uh, I said he was. You know, he was. uh, His behavior throughout the book is was just a surprise to me. He's a bully, but he's also sort of a coward. It's this strange, uh, uh, strange double thing there. Uh, He's sort of his his relationship to loyalty. He he values loyalty. He is loyal, but it's not really clear what he values except for blind loyalty. You know, it, it's it's very
2: remind you of anybody,
1: <laughs> huh? Yeah. And ah. he's he's not a complete person. He's sort of this uh, immature person, and at one point he he gets psychiatric
2: help. Yes, although very briefly, uh, he did when he was low. He 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 briefly saw a doctor out in L.A. named. Uh, Ralph Greenson, a psychiatrist, who also became Marilyn Monroe's psychiatrist. And his shrink, Ralph Greenson, was watching TV the night of the Oscar bro- broadcast in March 1954. And when Frank went up on stage to get his Oscar from, for From Here to Eternity, Greenson turned to his wife and he said, We'll never see him again. <laughs> and Frank never came back. That Oscar that cured
1: a, him, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, sure,
2: cured him, right.
1: It's hard to know was it that drive that made him terrible or was it his or was it the opposite you know was it was it his terrible behavior that made him sick? you know what i mean it's it, it's sort of tied together but uh i, I don't i,
2: I Sinatra is certainly not alone among celebrities and mega celebrities in, in 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 being crappy to those around him and it's very difficult for people who become mega famous to trust anybody around them. Sinatra had this terrible impatience to start with, this terrible temper to start with, this uh, chip on his shoulder, this feeling of being one down, this feeling built into him from being Italian American in the 20s and 30s of being less than. And so he he had Trouble trusting people he and and I dropped the lead the The important thing in all of this is that when he began to have trouble with Ava Gardner, uh, and which was right at the beginning of their marriage, he began to drink and he began to drink heavily, and he really he he had always drunk, but he really became a drunk. He became an alcoholic. I guess he had that tendency in him and he was a mean drunk. He drank a fifth of Jack Daniels every day of his adult life from age 35 on and it didn't do his personality uh, any favors. He, He would get very mean. He was a small guy and you're right. He was a bit of a coward like like many bullies, and he could he could be awful he listen this was a genius, and among among his uh among the the, the parts of his genius uh was a genius for making himself dislikable mm. but but in right in spending ten years with Sinatra i never uh I, I disliked him often, but I never got bored with him and <laughs> uh and his music always did, and I think always will his his best recordings still give me goosebumps. He is just, uh, I I I tend to forgive him just because he's such a towering artist.
1: Hmm. Uh, let me remind folks that James Kaplan is our guest. Folks can get information at jameskaplan.net. And we're talking about two books, Frank the Voice and Sinatra the Chairman. And uh, as I've said many times, I loved both of them. Uh, when you were putting the books together, the research, the writing, what Was there something that surprised you, something you didn't know, or uh, a widely held opinion or information that you just did not know?
2: Well, uh, two things. One is the first question anybody ever asks you when you say you've written about Sinatra is, was he really in the mob? Was he really in the mob? And, and of course, the truth is more nuanced than that. Uh, He was not in the mob but he did grow up italian-american and feeling uh... and feeling less than and when he began to play nightclubs these nightclubs were mostly run by the guys the fellas the good fellas the wise guys and a lot of them were italian-american not all a lot of them were jews like me but a lot of them were italian-american and sinatra idolized these guys because in an era when italian-americans were seen as less than these guys were powerful and he incorrectly saw them as uh, he correctly saw them as men of power, but he incorrectly saw them as men of honor. They were very cynical, terrible people, the mobsters and they were very cynical about Sinatra. They essentially saw him as a dollar sign as somebody who could bring put asses in nightclub seats, and he sure could but he he Idolized these guys much the same way uh, young boys idolize cowboys or or astronauts or or football players. He just thought they were cool and he hung out with them. He hung out with them, unfortunately, his whole life. The other thing that amazed me about Sinatra uh, was how incredibly hard he worked on his singing it's it is easy to hear a voice like that and think he just rolled out of bed in the morning able to do that and there are singers who can but he was not one of them he uh he did vocal exercises every day of his career. He used to swim laps underwater to build up his lung capacity. He would go into training when he had an important concert or was going to make an album, and he he cut down from two packs of unfiltered camels a day to just one, and maybe maybe take a, a couple of uh, a, a couple of tumblers off the fifth of Jack Daniels. Uh, but he's very very serious about his music, and and I would say that the thing that he was most serious about was before he ever sang a note of a song he studied the lyrics uh as if you were as if as if he was studying a, a poem uh he learned those lyrics deeply he moved into them and i think that is uh, together with that that voice that raises the hairs on the back of your neck uh really is that that's really what makes him as great as he is when he sang those words he believed them deeply he you felt that he lived that song mm. uh, one,
1: one thing the book after i read the the books uh, had me searching the internet looking for footage of him in a recording session and there really isn't much and it's a shame because you really want to see what you write about a blossom. You want to see it in action, and I sort of
2: it's... A, good, a good a good place to look for that is there was in 1965. CBS made a doc, documentary about Sinatra, narrated by Walter Cronkite, and there is some nice footage in the recording studio of uh, of uh, Sinatra singing "A Very Good Year."
1: Yeah, I think I saw, I think I saw that and it's he is so cool. I mean, you know, if you don't know the rest of it, he just comes off as the coolest guy. Yeah, and and the, and the best singer. Uh how many people did you personally talk to 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 put these books together?
2: <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. 10 years is a lot of people. I I crisscrossed back and forth from the East Coast to the West Coast new york l.a palm springs uh some other places uh in the first book when i'm when i was covering the first part of his life up to 1954 uh i had a real struggle part of the struggle was having never written about sinatra before uh i was unknown to the people i wanted to interview they didn't know me from adam and i and a number of doors Closed in my face uh, when I when I approached people. The other difficulty with the first book was that because uh, I was dealing with uh, sixty years in the past, uh, people who had known Sinatra directly were dying off like crazy. So I grabbed everybody I could find, everybody who would talk to me. Uh, when the first book came out. And got uh, got some good reviews. Uh, then more doors opened to me, and mm. I still continue to try to find uh, people who were still with us. But since I was dealing with a later period of Sinatra's career, they were in in greater supply for the second volume.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I, I would I would guess that if you had tried to write this while he was alive, all the doors probably would oh, have. Been... Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned the uh, Jerry Lewis piece, the 2000, uh, profile in the New Yorker, which is fantastic. I mean, I love Jerry. I've seen Jerry a bunch of times. Uh, and then you co-wrote the book, also excellent, called Dean and me, a love story. Uh, you co-wrote it with Jerry and, uh, Jerry passed away fairly recently. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about Jerry. Another super complex, oddball, uh, just out of control person. Uh, just tell me one Jerry Lewis story.
2: I will also tell you that, like Frank, Jerry was an only child, and I think that has to be factored in. And like, like Frank, he was a kind of deserted only child, which, which made Jerry uh, a, a deeply needy person. So, uh, I, I'm sorry, you wanted a story about Jerry?
1: Yeah. If you got one, just, <laughs> you, I mean, I, you, you must have hung out with him for hours and I, hours. Uh, I, yes.
2: Oh, yes. You know, I spent, I spent uh, an awful lot of time with him. And, well, let's see. I guess this is radio uh, worthy enough. I don't think there's anything, um, there's not really anything dirty in it. But Jerry, Jerry was, uh, he delighted in being outrageous his whole life. And he could be outrageous. He was never Politically correct. Uh, a lot of women dislike Jerry because Jerry was not always very kind to women. Uh, but uh, and he 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 especially, I think, uh, ten years ago or so, said something publicly about. Uh, the women, women comedians. He just thought women, women weren't funny. <laughs> he didn't care. He he just said it. Uh, he was wrong, and he said it anyway. But uh, the story I will tell you is the time uh, just after the book came out, Dean and Me: A Love Story. And Jerry was doing Letterman. He was on the Letterman show, and I went down. I went down to the city with my wife and my two older sons. Two of I have three sons, and. Uh, my youngest was not old enough to, to go to the studio, but we all, uh, we all got in an elevator backstage with, with Jerry, my wife, my older two sons, and I, and, and Jerry. And, and Jerry uh, politely introduced himself uh, to my wife and asked my son's names, and, and they told him Jacob and Aaron. And and Jerry immediately went into a little song, and it went something like this. Jacob and Aaron were faggots. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: and I'm going to tell you, my sons will never forget. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that is, that is just bizarre. I mean that is absolutely bizarre. Well, he could
2: he, he, yes, he could be absolutely bizarre. I'll tell you something about Jerry Lewis. He was like Sinatra. He he had somewhat of a, a genius for making himself dislikable. Uh but Jerry had Jerry was possessed with or possessed by comic genius. There was something in him that if you sort through all the strands and uh, through the unfunny stuff, and there was certainly a lot of unfunny stuff that he did, but he just, he had a real, he was an incredible ad libber. Uh, He was an incredible filmmaker. Uh, I I urge people to watch The Nutty Professor, not the Eddie Murphy one, but the Jerry Lewis one, again. It's an amazing piece of work. I urge people to watch The King of Comedy, the great Scorsese film with De Niro and Sandra Bernhardt and Jerry Lewis, essentially playing himself as as a very angry, grumpy, uh, late-night talk show host. It's a genius piece of acting, and that was really the way Jerry was.
1: Uh did Jerry Lewis give you any presents?
2: Did he give me presents? Yeah, he's constantly giving me presents. He <laughs> he he loved to he loved to autograph things, to give me uh pens. He gave me a beautiful digital recorder. He uh we got along very, very well. It's it's I, I never totally understood it because a lot of people didn't like him. I liked him from the beginning. He liked me, he respected me. Uh we were respectful to each other and uh and I just I have to find out. I maybe somebody out there knows and I'm a little hesitant about asking his his lovely widow, Sam, this question, but I don't know why I should be. I want to find out what aftershave he wore, because I can never forget the way he had this great smell about him, and it was some cologne that he wore, some, some old Vegas showbiz rat pack cologne that I would love to have myself, just to take a whiff of now and then. Uh,
1: oh, please do ask, and please let me know so I can yes. t- tell. The- I remember he once came on Letterman, and the first thing Letterman said was, you smell wonderful. And I'm sure... <laughs> He did he sent, say that? Yes, and I'm sure he sent Letterman 10 yeah, cases of uh Yeah, yeah, no, Letterman. he
2: he did. He did he he did smell great. He was just Listen, when while Jerry was still alive, he died last August. Uh I used to say about him, this is the last of the dinosaurs. This is the last of the great lizards that made the earth shake when they walked through showrooms in Vegas, when he walked down 5th Avenue in New York. This was the last of the great lizards. There would never be anybody like these guys again. Jerry, Dean Martin, Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. Never be anybody like them again. Yeah.
1: Alright, let me get back to Frank, uh, because I, I don't want to keep you for, for all day. Uh, I gotta bring up Ronan Farrow. There's, uh, some people have an idea that Ronan Farrow is Frank Sinatra's son. To me, it seems just impossible, just by the dates, by the, if you just work the numbers, look at where the, where, uh, Frank was and Mia Farrow was at the nine months before Ronan Farrow was born. Uh, just quickly, what's your take on that?
2: Uh, my take is that Ronan Farrow cannot be Frank Sinatra's son. Now, I, I, uh, I will make no commitments about who I think his father might be, but I will commit uh, completely uh, to the statement that, that Frank Sinatra was not Ronan Farrow's father. Uh, I would direct anybody uh, who is going to insist that, uh, that Ronan Farrow looks exactly like Sinatra, I would direct anybody to pictures of Mia Farrow when she was 19 years old. She was a spitting image of her son, Ronan.
1: It's a- absolutely true, yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, really the spitting image. And we all know, all of us, we all know kids out there who look exactly like one parent and nothing like the other. It just happens. Sinatra, uh, Ronan Farrow was conceived in February of 1987. And in December of 1986, three months prior to that, Sinatra had collapsed on stage in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. With acute diverticulitis, he had emergency intestinal surgery, 12 feet of intestine removed, and he was wearing a bag. He was wearing a bag. He was with his wife, Barbara, in Hawaii, uh, wearing a bag in early 1987 when Ronan Farrow was conceived. So I defy anybody (laughs) to contend that Sinatra somehow hopped on a jet with the bag back east, met, met Mia, and uh, and and shot off uh, Ronan Farrow. I, it didn't happen. It didn't mm-hmm. happen that way. Yeah.
1: Uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the book for me was the very, very, very end of the book because it's a time, uh, like I said in the beginning, uh, the opposite of that—a time that was not documented. There are no pictures. There is no film. There is no radio show or TV or recording of his last times. And uh, he sort of gets in this limousine, I think, after a, a dinner or, or a show, and then the rest he's just in this house uh, sort of half in and half out of things being controlled by his wife and uh, who his kids don't get along with and it's a sort of a chilling end to this incredible it story
2: it, it, it's a terrible ending, I, none of us really has a good ending, and Sinatra uh, Sinatra is no exception his, he, he had begun to lose his mind in his last years he did his body and his mind no favors with the liquor and the cigarettes and he began to forget lyrics on stage, he collapsed a couple of times he was less and less coherent, taking too many medications, and then uh, his last gig uh, was in Palm Springs in February of nineteen ninety five and After that, as you say, he withdrew to his home, his wife sort of uh, uh, in in control, Frank sitting in a wheelchair in on the sun porch and and, and not doing much and and being out of it and, and depressed it was It was sad, and it was bad. Yeah
1: his last wife doesn't see, does, you don't feel uh, a lot of love for her let's just say that. Uh these are it is uh just about summertime and these books are great summer reading, great beach reading. Frank the Voice and Sinatra the Chairman. Do you think these two books are different from other biographies?
2: Well, I would say uh, I would say yes because of the subject. This is a guy whose life Really, uh, kind of bookended the twentieth century. This was—it was the American century, and Sinatra was the great American life of the twentieth century. He was born in Hoboken, New Jersey, in December of nineteen fifteen, when there were still. Uh, horse-drawn carriages uh, among the automobiles on the cobblestone streets of Hoboken and he died May 14th, 1998, the night of the Seinfeld finale. So there you have the American (laughs) Century. This is a guy whose life intersected with virtually every uh, celebrity in America, show business and political, throughout the 20th century. And this is a guy who who, who really uh, in a certain way invented celebrity journalism by becoming the greatest subject of it or object of it, in uh, beginning in the in the 1940s, all the way into the 1990s. So, uh, and, and a lot of the biography was from the point of view of uh, the gossip columnists who were following him around, along with all the other people who were following him around. So, I would say that in in the subject himself, uh, who who, by the way, I'll say it again, was the greatest interpretive musician of all time and a genius. Uh, There you have a combination of factors that make this subject really unlike any other subject.
1: I always think it's interesting that the history of popular music is a great parallel version of American history because, like you say, Frank lived through the Depression and World Wars and the and the subsequent boom and the transition of, of entertainment from stage to radio to films to TV and the generation gap and his turn from supporting Kennedy to Reagan. And he sort of was born at the perfect time and sort of died at the perfect time because America will never sort of, I think, go through that cultural change that it, that it did at that time. Uh, after all of that though, after reading your, both of these books, 1500 pages, in some ways he's still kind of an enigma
2: he is and i think that i think the central enigma of sinatra is, again resides in that voice one hears that voice and one questions well why just why is this voice affecting me this way why is it so great why will this voice endure when others don't what is it about the voice and you can say you can you can elicit technical terms you can talk about his uh his his baritone and and uh talk about his his deep understanding of the lyrics and uh his breath control all of these contribute to it but ultimately the voice itself is is a deep mystery and i think uh in certain ways it was even a mystery to the man himself but it it it, 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 I think I think that is the core of Sinatra's mystery.
1: Yeah. JamesKaplan.net is where folks can get information about you. And I know you uh, told me off the air you're working on some interesting things. So keep your eye there for th- things to come. Before we started this, I asked you uh, what song you wanted to end with. And you picked Frank Sinatra's Summer Wind. Like you said to me off the air, there's a grillion amazing songs. Uh, there's no end. And he was a total genius. But why this one?
2: Well, this is one of the many Sinatra songs I love deeply. Uh, it's so richly atmospheric. Of course, there's that wonderful scene in the Pope of Greenwich Village in the movie where Mickey Rourke is preparing for a night out and putting, on, putting in his cufflinks to the strains of Sinatra singing Summer Wind. Uh, it is just, it takes you there. It just takes you there. And we're about to hit summer, and uh, it takes you to the very heart of what is best about that magical season. Yeah, Uh,
1: James Kaplan, uh, I loved loved these two books: Frank the Voice, Sinatra the Chairman. Uh, I hope folks will pick them up, uh, read them this summer. Let's hear Frank Sinatra right now. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Michael.
0: The summer wind The summer wind